We are moving on into our sermon of Judges chapter 19. Uh, I will be, I'll pray for us momentarily, but I do want you to know that this is a difficult text, and it is not something that is easy to read or easy to hear, but it is the word of the Lord to us today. And so it's with that in mind that we will go to his text in a moment. So let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Father in heaven, we do acknowledge that we need your wisdom. We need your understanding to not judge your word according to the wisdom and thoughts of man, but according to the wisdom and thoughts of the Holy Spirit who is our guide. We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive your word with humility and meekness, and that it would bear fruit in us, growing up in us, that we would live righteously and godly in a twisted and crooked generation. Lord, we do thank you for Christ, who guides us and leads us, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Judges chapter 19, hear now the reading of the word of the Lord. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from her father, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank, and after that sat and ate to drink together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to a close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall rise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said this to, and he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. 
And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field that evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And he said, we are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remotest part, remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come, I, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me and for your female servant and your young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants, only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the feed, the donkey's feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making merry with their hearts, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do to them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine And made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the door of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Thus ends the reading of the Lord of the Lord to us this morning. May he bless it. There's a reason I named this sermon the darkest night. It is truly the darkest night that we have in all of this passage of Judges. And it is supposed to be. It is the moment that provokes, ultimately, as we will see in the weeks ahead, a civil war within Israel. It's a a passage that many pastors, like myself, approach with trepidation. In fact, in many churches, even in our own city, they don't read this passage in church. They avoid it. They're afraid of what it might do, of how people might receive this and think this. It's too dark. It's too evil for us all everyone included, to look at. This is not a feel-good story. There is no happy ending. 
So if you came here to church today to feel good about yourself, I'm here to disappoint you. If you came here to be sheltered from the evils of this world, I'm afraid you have come to the wrong place as well. This is a place where we look intently at the evils of this world, in particular from this book of Judges. And I want us to know that this is not why we come to church. We don't come to church to be sheltered from evil. We come to church to hear from the Lord, to hear God's word. And I know this is a difficult text for us this morning. From beginning to end, it is a difficult text. But this is God's word to us today. So what are we to make of this story? Is it hopeless? It ends in a hopeless note. There's no good here. There's nothing hopeful as we finish this. Is it simply darkness? And that's all we're supposed to learn, that yes, we indeed live in a world of darkness and dark times. And so we need to go into the world with that in mind. Well, I hope to show that there is light in this story, and it will come in an unusual way, but I would like us to know that this is indeed the darkest night, the darkest story in the book of Judges. So with that in mind, I'd like us to look at this text in three ways. We're going to see a fleeing wife brought back. We're going to see their search for lodging, and then we'll look at this darkest night. So a fleeing wife brought back. The story begins with the refrain that marks this final section of Judges from chapter 17 through chapter 21. There was no king in Israel. And that is our interpretive key to the entire section of Judges 17 through 19, or 17 through 21. In fact, the whole book of Judges is marked by there is no king in Israel. It is the final words of this book of Judges. There is no king of Israel. And so that's something we have to hold in the background of our minds of how to understand this passage. Then it jumps immediately to two characters. First, we're introduced to a Levite who is sojourning mirroring what we saw in chapter 17 a couple weeks ago, that a Levite was not meant to sojourn like this. Something is up. Something is awry, as we saw with the previous Levite, Micah. Needless to say, this is not a commendable thing for a Levite to do. They had towns that were allotted to them where they were supposed to stay. Yet here is this man wandering around. The second thing we learn about him is he has a concubine. A concubine was a lesser sort of wife. Typically, these were daughters from families who were sold into marriage of this kind to pay off a debt. They would become functional wives for these men, and it was a way to preserve the family of origin that they have now paid off their debt, was to preserve the life of this young woman that now she had a family where she would be cared for and looked after, and it was a way for this man to increase his wealth and to Take care of this family. Now, it's not ideal, and it's not something that is commended in Scripture, but it is simply the, a nature of life in ancient Israel. But it's important for us to recognize that a, a concubine did not share the official status of a wife. And we'll see that as, it, as our story unfolds. Then we are introduced to this concubine. The text tells us that she was unfaithful to him, And subsequently, she left this Levite. She went away from him to her father's house. Now, there's some difficulty. You might be reading from your ESV Bible, English Standard Version, and there's some difficulty in this passage right away. Some of them have a footnote here. 
It points to the ancient Greek translation that says she was angry with him. So the question is, did she wrong him? Was she unfaithful to him? Or did he do something to her to provoke her to become angry? Scholars and commentators have wrestled with what happens here. I spent the majority of my week wrestling of what was happening is here, and I hope to clarify this as our text unfolds. What's actually happening here? How can we begin to understand this? Well, we begin to get some idea that she went away from him. Our Hebrew text is emphatic on this point. She's trying to get away from him. She left from him, going away from this man. And she runs back to her family, to her father's house, and she stays there for four months. Four months later, finally, this man gets up and comes back after his concubine. And the text tells us he comes to try and win her back to himself, to win her back. At her house, she takes him in to her father, and the text is a bit interesting here. This young woman is continually, or her, her father is continually referred to in a specific way that helps us figure out what is happening in this relationship with this man and this woman. She is, or he, her father, is referred to as the father of the young woman. Now, to us, that doesn't stand out. We think that's a normal way that you could refer to somebody. Maybe we don't say the father of this young woman, but to us, that seems a bit normal. But if you read your Hebrew text, as one scholar points out, that this phrase, the father of this young woman, is used six times in seven verses. It's an unusual thing to repeat this over and over and over. And there is only one other place in Scripture that this phrase occurs, the father of the young woman. And that is in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 15. There it is used of a woman who is accused of adultery by her newly wedded husband. And the father and mother of this woman are to stand up and prove that she is, in fact, a virgin when they got married. They have ways of proving this in ancient culture that is a bit obscure to us today, but they would consummate their marriage at home in order to demonstrate the fidelity of the young woman. And they would bring that out as evidence to show that she indeed was a virgin. That is why this woman is bringing her estranged husband to her father to say, now we can prove that I am indeed a virgin. I am not guilty of this thing that you are accusing me of. Commentators wrestle over this word, to, and she was unfaithful to him. There's many ways we can trans translate that preposition. Was she unfaithful to him? Was she unfaithful against him? As I believe that it's important to understand from here, she was unfaithful according to him. She was unfaithful according to his word. And he accused her, and that's why she fled this man. She goes home because he has no concern for her. She brings him to her father to try and defend her honor. And what happens? A surprising thing happens here. And when the girl's father saw him, her estranged husband, the Levite, he came with joy to meet him. Immediately, we are met with a situation that seems upside down. It's not unlike the situation we saw with our previous Levite, that everything seems awry. 
People doing what you don't expect them to do, acting according to normal customs and purposes. Does he confront this man and say, what did you do with my daughter? Why are you accusing her of, of this? No, not at all. That's not at all what he does. In fact, the opposite happens. He wines and dines this man for days on end. Three days, we're told, that he invites this man. That's the typical form of hospitality. Three days he stays, and three days we wonder what is going to happen with this woman. In fact, she, in a way, disappears in this text. Estranged from this man, we wonder what is going to happen in this relationship. On the fourth day, we expect the Levite to follow the old proverb. I'm sure you've heard this. Guests, like fish, begin to stink after three days. Three days he's there, and he realizes this, so he says, okay, it's time for me to go, but... Clearly, this man, this father of this woman, this young woman, has not had enough. He enjoys his company so much. It's potential that he is self-interested. If you welcomed a Levite into your home, the Old Testament promises that great blessing will come to you. It's possible this man is self-interested in his actions. He pleads with him to stay. And so the Levite stays again for an additional day. It's a pattern that we see in the Old Testament of three days or three some, something happening three consecutive times, and the fourth time, something surprising happens. We saw this with Samson. Three times Delilah pleaded with him to reveal his secret, and he doesn't. But then on the fourth time, something surprising happens. And that's what we're supposed to see here. This Levite stays. He stays back to eat and drink, to be merry, to have a good time. It's like two drinking buddies, they get back together again and they can't have enough. Okay, fine, I'll, I'll stay. And then on the fifth day, he wakes up. We expect him, finally, surely he will leave. But he's still not done. His friend prevails on him and they stay for the whole morning and afternoon, eating and drinking, partying yet again. But this man finally realizes, I'm really going to stink after this, so I better get up and get going. And we're left wondering, what happened to this woman? What happened in this relationship? He said, I'm coming to restore her heart, to speak softly to her heart. But what ends up happening is her father is the one who speaks softly to him. There's no record of the conversation of this Levite with his estranged wife. The woman is sidelined, an afterthought in this text. And then the text tells us something that begins to shape the rest of this narrative. The Levite departs for home, and the sky begins to darken. Please spend the night, his friend says. And he departs at evening. The day is starting to become dark. The situation is not good. Then we see this turn towards a search for lodging. And everything in this text is pointing us towards seeing that darkness is progressively settling in, emphasizing over and over the time of day is rapidly going away. Their protracted stay at this woman's father's house has put them in a precarious position. Do they continue on late into the evening? Or as his servant says, do we stay at Jebus, at the place of the Jebusites? That might not mean much to us, but that was a 
city that was occupied by foreigners at that time. These were not people who were friendly to Israel. They were enemies of Israel. So to go stay in enemy territory, you would expect things may not go so well. But this man says, no, we're going to go on. We're going to go stay with fellow Israelites up in Gibeah or possibly Ramah. So they continue on. But we also have to remember that this is approaching nighttime. They don't have technology like we have. There's not streetlights lining the pathway as they're going. They don't have flashlights to shine the way. Once it gets dark, you can't see. So to travel at nighttime is a very dangerous task. And then whatever hope they had of finding safe lodging is eroded once they arrive at Gibeah. The text tells us that they sat down in the open square of the city, a place where you'd likely encounter somebody, and no one took them in to his house to spend the night. It was common courtesy in that time. You didn't have hotels like we have today. People were the ones who were expected to care for travelers. But something is wrong in the city. Nobody is caring for a traveler. And then suddenly the only one who seems to care is himself not a resident of this city, another fellow sojourner. We start to feel the night is dark. Nobody good is here. They finally arrive, and an old man shows up to help them. A fellow person from his homeland, the hill country of Ephraim. This last guest, this last man shows up, this old man shows up and is a last gasp for these weary travelers. And this man finds out the situation and he realizes these are going to be ideal house guests. They have everything they need taken care of. So sure, you can come in. Peace be to you. Come on in. And this old man shows proper hospitality. He takes care of their donkeys and allows them to get cleaned up for the evening. And then they start drinking and having a merry time, as we learn. The old man comes in, he brings, brings them in. And then our text turns to the darkest night. There's one last detail before the man welcomes them in. He tells them, we learn there's nobody hospitable in this town, and he tells them, do not spend the night in the square. What does this old man know about this city? A warning that we encounter No sooner are they in the house of this old man than something astonishing happens. The house is surrounded and men are pounding on the door. He takes them in. They sit down for a relaxing evening, whining and dining with each other, having a merry time, and then the worst nightmare comes true. It's nighttime. It's dark. There's nothing safe around them. And the men that comes are not thieves who are there to take their possessions. They are, as our text tells us, worthless men, sons of Belial, a word that shows up even in the New Testament to refer to worthless people. And they demand for this new traveler to be sent out so they can, as our text tells us, know him. Our English versions are much more subtle than the Hebrew is. They want to rape him. It's very clear what's going on here. We learn immediately that Gibeah is the opposite of a hospitable city. It is the worst kind of city. That if you are a traveler, a foreigner entering into this place, that 
Not are you, you are not going to be cared for, but you are going to be taken advantage of in the most humiliating way. It's an utterly despicable act that these men want to commit. And it's not even simply homosexuality, as we see, something that is already an abomination in the eyes of the Lord, but forced, forced homosexuality. And the old man finds himself in a precarious position. He has welcomed these guests into his home. What is he going to do? Where is he going to turn in this moment? Having welcomed these travelers, he is between what we say a rock and a hard place. These men are not interested in him, likely because he's an old man. Remember, this is a newlywed man. He's likely younger. They're not interested in him. Does he send this man out and violate the customs of hospitality that are common in that time? Or does he do something else? He devises a plan that he thinks will get him out of this circumstance. A quickly devised plan, yet a foolish and wicked plan. He offers them his own virgin daughter and this man's concubine. We see the impossibility of this situation that he finds himself in. But there's no excuse for his actions here. It is a humanly devised way to get themselves out of a difficult circumstance. And he tells them that these worthless men may do to these young women whatever is right in their own eyes. Our text does not quite capture this as it comes through in the Hebrew, and this is essential for us to see. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and concubine. Let, them, let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. Do with them what is right, what is good in your own eyes. It's a reminder of the story of Samson. This man does not cry out. Just as the story of Samson begins with Israel no longer crying out for deliverance under their oppressors. They simply live in that circumstance. There is no cry for deliverance from this man. No help from the Lord being sought. He just relies on himself, on his own ingenuity, for a plan to get out of this. To preserve his own honor. Not the honor of his virgin daughter and this concubine. He too is now seen as a godless man. Doing whatever is right in his own eyes. But the offer isn't good enough. These worthless men want one thing and one thing alone. At this point, every Israelite would know the circumstance that's being portrayed in this text. It's an echo of an earlier circumstance in the book of Genesis. What is being portrayed here is that in the heart of Israel, Gibeah, that's in the center of the land of Israel, is a city that had become like the most wicked city in the Old Testament, Sodom. Abraham's brother Lot lived in this wicked city, and angels were sent to come rescue Lot out of the city, and an almost identical circumstance unfolds with Lot in Genesis chapter 19. The house is surrounded by there the entire city of young men and old, hell-bent on one thing, violating these male guests. And it's an instructive lesson for all of Israel to see. 
that Israel, in its very heart, had become just like the wickedness of the nations around them. They are no different. At the very center is the greatest of evil. But the men only want thing, and so the Levite, our text tells us, the man takes his concubine, takes matters into his own hands, he seizes her and sends her out. And then we read one of the most tragic, awful incidents in all of Scripture. She's brutalized all night until the day dawns, and she makes it as far as the front doorstep of the house, and there she lies. See, unlike the story of Lot where the two angels intervene and preserve the life of Lot and his family, there's no savior here. There's no intervention. It ends in darkness. But the heart-wrenching episode continues. As if it couldn't get any worse, the man, who is now no longer referred to as her husband, but as her master, there is an indictment there of his actions. It's as if he seems completely oblivious to what happened that night. Verse 27, her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house, he went out to go on his way. Why did he not go out and look for her? Why was he at home sleeping all night, gets up in the morning, gets ready to go, and walks out the door as if he's ready to go on his way? He hasn't gone looking for her. And the moment he steps out of the door, a very interesting word occurs. Behold, his concubine. As if he did not even expect to see her there. Thinking, oh, she'll just find her on the way. It's the utter callousness that he shows towards this woman. It's reflective of the accusation that he levels at her at the very beginning of this text. I don't care about this woman. She commits adultery. Get her out of my sight. And the moment he steps out, there is his concubine lying in a heap on the ground. But what is his response to her? Is he astonished? Is he surprised? No, it is two simple words. Get up. In Hebrew, it is one word. Kumi. He has nothing to say to her totally oblivious to everything that happened to this young woman. He was only looking out for himself. He enjoyed a night of revelry, sent his concubine out, and went back to his activities. A man who was only concerned with his own pleasure and happiness. And the text goes on. Something even more astonishing happens. He cuts up her body one part for each of the other ten tribes and the two half-tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. And he sends them out on a circuitous route to all the tribes of Israel. Why is he doing this? Does he actually care about the woman? Is this him saying an injustice has occurred against my concubine? Certainly it doesn't seem that way. No, ultimately, this is a man who is deeply offended that anybody would treat him this way. How dare these men want to treat me this way? 
How dare these men treat my property this way? He understands that this is an evil act, but ultimately he is, cares only for himself. And we will see this exemplified next week in chapter 20. So he seeks to rectify the situation for himself. But as we learned at the beginning of the text, he's from the tribe of Levi. The Levites have no inheritance in the land. Who does he appeal to? There's no judges. There are no judges in the rest of the book of Judges from chapter 17 through 21. He appeals to the tribes of Israel to be his judge. What strikes us is the words at the very beginning of our text. There was no king in Israel for this man to appeal to. And so he appeals to the tribes, and we will see what happens in the weeks to come when there is no king. We look at this passage and we think, is there hope? Well, first of all, I want us, we need to be struck with the darkness of this passage. There are churches around us who will not read this passage. They will avoid it. It's too dark. There are children present. Let me be clear with you. Every single one of us deserves hell. Every single one of us is under the wrath and judgment of God apart from Jesus Christ. And if God were to pull back the curtain of our own hearts and all the ways we try to insulate ourselves from the depravity of our own hearts, we would be utterly astonished. We would read this story not with fright, but realizing we are wicked. The heart of wickedness lies in all of us that was found ultimately in these men. The, one of the reasons this story is so disturbing to us is because of how unfamiliar with the wickedness of our own hearts we are. And I cannot hide from you the wickedness that is present in this world and present in the hearts of men. From a child to a great-grandma, we are all evil and deserve the wrath of God. We are all born in sin. We must see the darkness. But is there hope? We must go back to the beginning of this passage. There was no king in Israel. It is a circumstance crying out for justice, crying out for righteousness. It shows the people of God their desperate need for a king. That is what we are to see here. How desperately we need a king. One who is righteous. One who will execute justice. Where is God in this story? Well, in one sense, he's not here. The only time his name is used is on the lips of the Levite and most likely in a self-interested way to ingratiate him to his potential host. He has portrayed this picture to show that none of this is according to his his desire. Yet there is a promise in our opening words. There was no king in Israel. In these days, there was no king. There is anticipation for these people that a king would come. 
The people of Israel knew that God had promised a savior, a deliverer, a judge, ultimately a king who would come. And the amazing thing for you and I is that we live on the other side of that promise. That not only has a Savior come, but he has come to establish righteousness and justice. And he has come to save. The King has come. The Lord Jesus Christ has come. And he will save to the uttermost everyone who draws near to him. And there's three things that we need to understand what Jesus does that help us understand how to handle this passage. The first thing is that Jesus came to deal with sin. And you and I must reckon with the fact that Jesus died for the ugliest, most hideous sin that we can think of. Jesus died for sins like what these men did. He died for these kind of people. The sins that we see in this passage, the sins we don't want to look at, It's why it's a travesty that churches don't want to read this passage. Because then they do not see the depth to which Christ's love will descend. And this is something that you and I all need to hear. There is no sin that is too deep in our hearts to which the love of Christ will not go. And so often we think we need to clean ourselves up. I don't want to look at those ugly things in my life. You cannot come to Jesus like that. You must come with full understanding of who you are. And that's the way he cleans you up. Is by saying, I give myself to you. Not you giving yourself to me all cleaned up. It is as we heard in Romans chapter 5, loving us who were his enemy. The second thing that Jesus is going to do as a king is he will return to right every wrong. And he has the authority and power to do this because he is the one true king over heaven and earth. He's risen from the dead, and he's alive forevermore. No one can take his kingship away. He has it for eternity. And that's hope for you and me, and it is hope for even this concubine in this text with all the evil that had happened to her. That Jesus will indeed bring every sin into judgment. But it also means that for all who refuse to repent and turn from their sin, they will indeed be judged. Read the book of Acts. Notice how every sermon in the book of Acts ends. Jesus, this king, who is now coming again to judge the world in righteousness. Therefore, repent. He will bring every sin into judgment. But as he says in Luke 18, Jesus to his disciples, he will indeed give justice to elect, to his elect, who cry out to him day and night. But there is one more thing that Jesus does as king. 
Because he has risen from the dead, he has power over death itself. One thing that's fascinating in this passage is the words that this husband, this master says to his wife, his concubine is, get up, kumi. If you know your New Testaments, there is one other person who uses that exact wording. It's Jesus. To another young woman who is dead. And he says to her, Talitha kumi, which means, young woman, arise, get up. It is not the words of a self-interested master. It is the words of a loving Savior who has power over death itself. The last thing that Jesus will do is he will raise up from the dead all who trust in him. And he will vindicate them before the world. The story is indeed a utter tragedy, but there is hope that a true king is coming and for us today has come. It is not the end. Death is not the end in this story. What happened to this woman is not the end. He will bring back to life all who trust in him. Remember what Jesus said to Mary when she says, Jesus, if only you were here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus is not even put out by this. Oh, Mary. What has he said to her? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live again. And so, yes, indeed, the sin of this world is awful. And the sin of our own hearts is awful. But we have a Savior. We have a King who has conquered sin and has conquered death itself for us. So friends, brothers and sisters, rest in Jesus Christ, our risen King, who will indeed bring every wrong to justice and who will vindicate his people. Though they die, he will raise them to new life. Rest in him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do stand before your word uh, as weak people. And this text troubles us, but we pray you would comfort our hearts with Jesus Christ, that he is our only hope in life and death. As our hymn we sing so often, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever take me from his hand. Lord, help us to rest in Christ, even in the midst of the darkness of this world, the light that has dawned, the sun that is shining. We do pray this in the name of Christ, our risen Savior. Amen.